morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm having a great time in the Gospel of John. And I know I say that about every book, but you know, when you just really get into it, when you're spending all week going over it, you, you see things you never saw before when you were reading it, so it, uh, it's been very enjoyable. Now last week we focused on the fact that the Father had given to the Son a love gift of the elect. He had promised the Son a gift for His suffering. And this deals with the sovereignty of God in salvation. Now, most people who read their Bible at all will tell you that they believe in the sovereignty of God. But then when you ask them, what do you mean by the sovereignty of God? Because I never met a Christian that didn't believe in the sovereignty of God. But they'll, you know, you ask them what do they mean, then they have different ideas on what they mean about how far His sovereignty can go. Right? He can only go so far. But most believers who say they believe in the sovereignty of God do not believe that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. And the question of how man is saved has received varying answers throughout the years. We can go back to uh, Pelagius, who was a British monk who preached that man came to salvation by himself. Just on his own, didn't need grace, didn't he? He just came by himself. So many people today believe that. You ask people, how do you know you're going to heaven? Well, I do this and I do that. And you think, are you really counting on your works to get you there? I mean, <laughs> how, how arrogant are you to think you're, you're earning these things to get there? All right? He denied the necessity. Pelagius denied the, the necessity of grace entirely. Now, Pelagians would be those who follow Pelagius' principle, believe that men are saved by the things that they do. They earn their way, you know, your good works outweigh your bad works, and you're okay. Then we have what was called semi-Pelagians. And they're, they're the ones who acknowledge the need of grace. But they hold inconsistently to the fact that we come of our own free will. See, semi-Pelagians say, I wanted to come, and God helped me to get there. They deny the grace that comes first and enables a man to respond to the Word of God. They conceive of themselves as the fir- as first responding, first choosing, and then being helped by God to receive the Savior. Well, many evangelicals today, I think, would fit into the category of semi-Pelagians. All right? They will say they're saved only by grace, but at the same time, they're saved through the exercise of their free will. You don't even have to be a believer to talk about free will because the movies, the Hollywood movies talk about, you know, free will and anything that mentions God in them, you know, well, God can't dare violate our free will. He's really limited, this God, okay? Now, in our last study, hopefully you were with us, you, we showed how free will plays no part in man's salvation. The only people who come, the only people who believe in Christ are those who the Father has drawn. And we spent pretty much the whole time last week talking about that. Irresistibly drawn. Who God calls comes. The the people, the group, the elect that the Father has given to the Son will all come to the Son. Because the Father gave them to the Son as a gift. Now, let me briefly remind you of the context here, because this is a long chapter, and it'd be great if we could just do it all in one setting, but I don't think you want to be here for eight hours, so we've got to break it down in chunks, all right? Remember, our Lord had fed 20,000 people or more. He multiplied you know, five barley loaves and two fish, and He fed all these people. And the other Gospels tell us that during that day, He was healing people all day long. So you can imagine, you're there, you're watching this happen, this guy's healing people, and at the end of the day, you're like, you're famished because there's no McDonald's nearby, there's no place to get anything to eat. And, and then the Lord feeds everybody. And as soon as He feeds them, He puts the disciples in the boat, get out of here because messianic fever is high, and the people say, they want to be, they want to make Him a king. And He says, nope, don't, not interested in that kind of kingship. And so they, He goes into the mountain to pray, disciples send off, and eventually He walks across the water, and they end up at Capernaum. Boat's transported, he's in the boat, storm stopped, boom, they're at Capernaum, alright? And the, all these people who are over there, a bunch of them, follow him to Capernaum because they like the idea of Yeshua's welfare program. Free food! This is awesome! You know, especially in that day and age, you'll free food! Let's follow this guy! So they sought after him. 
And, you know, we see them getting into conversations. He answers some of their questions. And then he gives the sermon, which is called the Sermon on the Bread of Life. And it all comes out of this incident of the miracle of feeding. It's just like in chapter 5. He does a miracle, and then he explains it the rest of the chapter. Here, chapter 6, he does this miracle, and everything else revolves around this miracle of the Bread of Life. Now, we have to keep in mind Yeshua's audience here. Very important, all right? He is talking with unbelieving Jews who are skeptics. Now, they're seeing these things, but they're not believing them. They ate the bread, and they wanted to make him king because they liked that idea. Hey, you keep on feeding us. This is a good thing. But he didn't come to reign physically over the Jews, but he came to reign spiritually over all men. Well, they later, when they found him in Capernaum, they sought him, they went after him, but they for the wrong reason. They wanted him to be the new Moses who would provide for them a lifetime supply of physical bread. So Yeshua tells them that he is the bread of life. In verse 35, Yeshua said to them, I am, he's been talking about the bread. Now he wants to get it in their heads. Listen, guys, I am, I'm talking about me. I am the bread of life. Who comes, he who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Now, we've seen over and over in this context, you know, he's tying things back to Moses in the manna. Well, here we see the first major I am saying in the fourth gospel. And what our Lord does here is he takes the tetragrammaton, the yod He vav He, the verb to be in Hebrew, which was the name of God, I am that I am. It's the name that God told Moses. He said, who should I say sent you? He said, Ehiah Asher Ehiah, I am who I am. Tell them that. I am sent me. And that connected them again. Immediately, that would connect them back to Moses again. And he used this phrase so they might make this identification between Yahweh, who led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and dealt with them as a covenant-keeping God, and connected to Yeshua, who now is feeding them who now is ministering to them. He wants them to make that connection. Yeshua says, I am the God of Moses. I'm the one who provided the physical manna. I am the one who provides spiritually all you'll need. I provide you eternal life. The gift of the manna, the multiplication of the loaves are explained as parables of His gift of Himself. See, that manna was physical and only lasts, even though it lasted for 40 years, those people still died. Now, was it important that the Jews realize that Yeshua is Yahweh? You know, over he's going to say it seven times. I am. I am. He says it more than seven, but I am, and he's going to connect the metaphor with it. All right? Well, notice what he tells the Jews later in 8.24. He says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So he claimed to be Yahweh, and he says, if you don't believe this, if you don't understand who I am, if you don't see me as God, you'll die in your sins, because that's who I am. And to believe anything else is not to believe what I'm telling you. And he says here, I am the bread of life. And the whole discussion of the man of verses 22 to 34 appears to have been designed to lead to this statement. See, the Jewish request in verse 34, Lord, always give us this bread. You know, he's talking about bread. They say, hey, give us that bread. It suggests they had a misunderstanding about the manna, which allows Lazarus and Yeshua to make the matter perfectly clear. He says, I am the bread. He claims to be the bread of life. Three times in this discourse, in 35, 48, and 51. And the word picture of bread reveals that he alone is the spiritual nourishment that provides life for his people. You know, Yeshua fed the 20,000 Jews with five barley loaves and two fish. And He had 12 baskets left over that proved He was the bread of life for Israel. And it's not recorded in in John's Gospel, but the other Gospels tell us that He fed 4,000 Gentiles with four loaves and He had seven baskets left over, showing that He is the bread of life for Gentiles also. Yeshua is the bread of life. In Him, and Him alone, we find spiritual nourishment. Now, in the ancient world generally, and in Palestine particularly, bread was a basic foodstuff. 
It's not the bread we eat today. All right. It was a totally different bread. It was healthy. Okay. It wasn't like our bread. All right. But it was the primary source of nutrition and usually the only solid food that a Palestinian peasant would get to eat. So it was virtually the source of survival for them. Thus, the fundamental thought would have been associated with bread by Yeshua's audience was that nourishment, it sustained life, it provided for all that we needed. Just as physical life depends on food, symbolized by the bread, so spiritual life depends on Yeshua. Now, where was Yeshua born? Where was He born? Well, we kind of sang about it this morning, right? Everybody knows where He was born, right? Bethlehem? Sound familiar? Bethlehem. That's where He was born. Bethlehem. Bethlehem comes from two words, bayat and house, meaning house, and lechem, meaning bread. So, what do we call a house of bread? A bakery. The bread of life was born in a bakery. How cool is that? (laughs) I mean, you know, the Scripture is just loaded with this kind of stuff. Alright? The picture reveals that He alone offers the spiritual provision that we need. Here is the bread of life. This is the first of seven claims that Lazarus records Yeshua making in the Gospel. He used the same expression, I am plus a predicate in each case. He claims to be the bread of life here. In other words, He's the satisfier. He is the sustainer of life. Later, He's going to say, I am the light of the world. In other words, He dispels the darkness of sin. Then He's going to say, I am the door. So He's the entrance into fellowship with God. Then He's going to say, I am the Good Shepherd. In other words, the protector, the guide in life. Then He's going to say, I am the resurrection and the life. He's the giver of eternal life. Then He's going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And by the way, that's I am the only way, the only truth, the only life. He's not one of you can add to your collection of other gods. He is it. He is the only one. And then finally, in John 15, He will say, I am the true vine. He's the source of vitality and productivity. Each of these statements is a description of Yeshua's relationship to His people. And He's trying to tell them, I am God, and here's my relationship with you. He is the bread. He is the provider for our spiritual life. Now, Lazarus may be picturing Yeshua also as wisdom personified in the book of Proverbs. Because when you get to Proverbs, in chapter 9, the first five verses talk about wisdom. But it's referring to Yeshua. And just as wisdom personified in Proverbs invites all people and all nations to her table, so does Yeshua invite all to come to Him and be filled. In Proverbs 9.5, it says, Come and eat of my food and drink of my wine I have mixed. In other words, this is the invitation. Come, eat, and drink. The wisdom of God is Yahweh Himself. Now, we looked at this last week. The end of verse 35 says, He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So hunger and thirst represent the total need of mankind. Alright? We need food. We need water. These are total need. And notice that comes to me and believes in me are synonyms. He's saying the same thing. They're parallel terms. Coming to Christ is the same as believing in Christ and vice versa. Now this is important as we go throughout this text to realize this. So the one who's coming to Him is the one who is believing in Him. Verse 36 says, But I said to you, That you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. They saw him. And he's speaking of you've seen me in my messianic function. You've seen me heal all those people. You saw me feed the 20,000. But you didn't see in it the miracle of who I am. You saw the sign. You liked the sign. You said, give us more bread. But you didn't realize that the sign pointed to me as God. See, if the Jews can see Yeshua as His miraculous signs, and yet they see all these things, and they still don't come to faith, then you got to say, well, how do they see this? How do you see a man healing people, raising the dead, feeding people, doing all these things, 
and then you don't believe in him. Does that suggest that maybe his mission is in some sense a failure? He came, he's doing all this stuff, and they still don't get it? Well, Yeshua responds, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And you have to see this in context. Because that's the idea. Maybe there's questioning going on about his ministry. You know, well, all these, they're not believing. He said, that's okay. Because all the ones the Father gives me, they're going to come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. They will come to me. Remember, coming to Christ is believing in Christ. That's what he's saying. They will believe in me. So who comes to or who believes in Yeshua? All that the Father gives to him. Who are those? It's the elect. I mean, we don't know who they are. You know, Spurgeon said, if I, if God would have marked the elect with a yellow stripe on their back, I would run around and lift up everybody's shirt. But we don't know. So we preach the gospel to everybody. But he's trying to tell us the ability to believe on Yeshua required divine enablement. It is only those who the Father enables to believe, the Father enables to come to Yeshua, that come. And these are all the people that he's given to Yeshua as a gift. Now the word gives here is a word of destiny. It's divine sovereign election. This is what theologians call irresistible grace. You know why they call it irresistible? Because you can't resist it. Isn't that amazing? These guys, these theologians come up with some great great stuff, don't they? It's irresistible because you cannot resist it. But most people don't view it that way. Most people view grace as something that God puts out there, and if you want it, you can have it. If you don't, you don't. No, this is irresistible grace. All these people who the Father gives, they come. Now, some people say, well, does this mean that God drags people to Christ kicking and screaming? I don't want to be saved. And you drag, you're coming anyway. No. It means that God gives them a new heart so they can respond to the gospel. That's what the Bible teaches. Our heart is a heart of stone. We need a heart transplant. And until we get a heart transplant, people, we're not going to believe the gospel. Look at Acts 16, 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a worshiper of God, was listening. They're preaching the gospel. Paul is. And it says, watch, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken about Paul. Why did Lydia believe? Because the Lord opened her heart. See, if you try to deny that the one single reason that Lydia understood and believed the gospel was that God deliberately opened her heart and enabled her to believe, you are fighting the Word of God. Because that's what this text says. You try to get free will into this text and you're going to have a very difficult time doing it. Okay? The God opened her, it doesn't say Lydia opened her heart, it says God opened her heart. Why? Because that's the only way her heart would have been open. It's stone. Now watch what he says at the end of the verse. This is, this is, I love the ending as much as the beginning. The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You know a great argument in the church today? Once saved, always saved. You got saved, you stay saved? If you know what saved is, if you know how you got saved, you know you stay saved. Okay, you don't lose salvation. So the second part of this verse moves from the collective whole to the individual, from actual coming to preservation. Remember, coming to Christ, believing in Christ are synonyms. Yeshua uses a figure of speech here called litetes. I know you're familiar with that because I've mentioned it many times before, all right? He used that to stress strongly the positive fact that all who believe in Him find acceptance and security. In Lytetes, the speaker or the writer affirms a positive truth by negating the opposite. All right? For example, someone when you heard someone say, this is no small matter. What does that mean? It means it's a very significant matter. That's a Lytetes. All right? So in the first part of the verse, Yeshua spoke of the elect as a group. And in the second part here, He refers to every individual in that group. And Yeshua had confidence in the Father drawing the elect to Him. And the believer may have confidence too of the Son receiving and retaining all that the Father has given Him. The Father gives, the Son hangs on to. Now the word cast out here comes from the Greek ekbalo. Ekbalo means to drive away or cast out. 
in almost all of its parallel occurrence, it presupposes that what is driven out is already in. I will never drive them away, therefore means I will certainly keep them. Everything the Father gives... Listen, the Father gave me a gift. I'm going to keep that gift. Every one of the gifts that He has given me, I'm going to keep. Alright? As I said, this is speaking of eternal security. That is that salvation is secure. Because God gave you that salvation. You were a gift given by the Father. And just as I did nothing to earn my salvation, I was drawn by the Father, I was given by the Father, I can do nothing to lose it. See, that's why people think, oh, I could do this and lose my salvation. Then you think you earned it in the first place and you are in trouble because salvation is a gift of God. And if you think you earned that salvation, you don't understand salvation. It's important, people. I'm eternally secure in the Father's electing love. There is nothing more important for a believer to understand than eternal security. Because believer, you're going to have falls, you're going to have disappointments, you're going to have doubts, and if you're not sure you're a child of God, then you're not going to have any motivation to keep going. But see, my motivation to keep going is, I'm his child. I may fall, I may doubt, I may question, you know, no, you just keep on going because I am his child. That's our motivation for holy living, I belong to him. It's not, you know, most people's motivation for holy living is, well, God will like you and he'll keep you around if you do right. Man, that's a frustrating plan, okay? Very frustrating plan. Listen, if any part of my salvation depends on me, I'm damned. Because if I could lose salvation, I promise you I would do it. Okay? I would do it because, you know, you, if you think you're going to hang on, I'm going to do all the right things, I'm not. You know what? I got news for you. You would lose it too. Okay? Because the only way we stand before God is in Christ. We are perfect in Him. So I rejoice in the fact that I can lose it. The one who is given, the one who is drawn, comes. And the one who comes is eternally secure. I I think it's all a matter of understanding your identity. Who are you? You are in Christ. Yeshua, over and over. If you're in Christ, then you share all He has and is. That's your position. So the chance of you losing your salvation is as good a chance as Yeshua has of getting kicked out of the Trinity. Because you're in Him. I don't think there's any chance of Him getting kicked out of the Trinity. So you're secure. You can rest in that. And I think it's important. I really think it's a motivation for holy living. In verse 38, He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So Yeshua came to do the will of the Father. Now, this is a perfect tense which refers to the incarnation. He came from heaven, He became a man, and over and over Yeshua speaks of His pre-existence. In chapter 6 alone, He says this eight times. You think He wants them to get it? I came down from heaven. Lazarus began the Gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word here is Yeshua. Therefore, Yeshua was the there, pre-existent with Yahweh, co-existent with Yahweh, self-existent with Yahweh eternally. As a person, He is the eternal Son of God. He existed everlastingly in the presence of God and the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is God of very God. And He says, unless you believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins. It's important we get this. Look at John 8.42. Yeshua said to them, if God were your Father, again, talking to the Jews, who think God is their Father, so this is, this is biting to them, alright? If God were your Father, you'd love Me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on My own initiative, but He sent Me. He existed in the presence of God from all eternity. He's not a created being. He always existed as God, the Son. So Yeshua says here, I am referring to His deity. And now He says, I came down from heaven. Again referring to His deity. He's trying to tell them, you've got to understand, I'm Yahweh in the flesh. I didn't come of my own will. 
But of him who sent me, now, this is basically a repeat of 530. What he said in that chapter, he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See, the purpose of the incarnation was that the son would fulfill the father's will. That's what he came to do. Whatever the father's will is, he came to do it. The son does not act independently of the father, but only in submission to the father. If the father gives someone to the son, the son will receive and keep that individual because the father's given him to him. And so the son came to do the will of the father, and he explains further what it is. He says, this is the will of him who sent me. I came to do his will. Here's his will. That all he give me, I'll lose nothing. I love it. But raise him up at the last day. If you're given, you're going to get resurrected. That's what he's saying. Listen, if one individual that the Father gave to the Son failed to reach heaven, it would be a disgrace to the Son. It would indicate his inability or unwillingness to do the Father's will. If you are a believer, you are secure, you will never lose your salvation. So, if someone wants to argue with you about once saved, always saved, if you ever are saved, you are saved forever. That's all there is to it. It's not, you know, unless you've got a temporary plan. But I haven't found them. Now, maybe there's some temporary plans out there that I haven't heard about, but if you've got the five-year plan, then you can lose it. Ten-year plan, but see, what you get is eternal life. How long do you think eternal life would last? Just a guess. Eternally, maybe? If, you, if it doesn't last eternally, it's not eternal life, is it? It's something else. Three times in five verses, he says this. He talks about the last day. The last day is a phrase that only occurs in John's Gospel. You won't find last day anywhere else. It's in John's Gospel. So what is Yeshua referring to when he speaks of the last day? And what is it that he's going to raise up? Well, Martha said to him, I know, speaking of her brother that had died, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha says, well, the resurrection is the thing that's going to take place on the last day. So when Yeshua says he's going to raise it up, he's referring to the resurrection. And he tells it that this resurrection will happen on the last day. So when Yeshua says, all that the Father has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day, he's saying all those individuals that the Father gave me, will be resurrected. All believers, no one's going to get left out. No one's going to get missed. Well, when is the last day? Because we read the last day, and you know, you think you know, well, that's the last day, right? I mean, that's what it says. That's what it means. The last day. The last day of what? The last day of everything, I guess, right? No. The traditional view that is held by most of the church today is that the resurrection takes place on the last day, but the last day is the last day of the world. It's the last day of everything we know. But let me say here, and you've got to get this distinction here, the Bible does not speak of the end of time. Nowhere does the Bible speak of the end of time. The expression, the end time, or the time of the end is found in Scripture, but nowhere does the Bible say the end of time. Now, the expression, the end time and time of the end, speaks of the end of an age, the end of a period of time, but the end of, the, of an age is not the end of time. Very shortly here, we're coming to the end of an age on January 20th. The age is going to end. January 20th is the last day, Okay. And a new age dawns, alright? It's definitely the end time, and it's the end time we're looking forward to, alright? It's, it's a new era, a new day. Now, to the Jews, and remember, he's speaking to Jews. So you want to understand what he's saying, and understand what the Jews believe. To them, time was divided into two great periods. You had the Mosaic period, and you had the Messianic period, alright? And during the Second Temple period, they distinguished between these two types of olam. Alam Hazah, the world, this world, and Alam Haba, the world to come. And the world to come was the world of the Messiah. The Alam Hazah, or this world, is characterized, according to the rabbis, by darkness, wickedness, sin, and death. It is called night. The Alam Haba, or the world to come, as was called by the rabbis, was known as a time of peace and joy and light and eternity, because it was the age of Messiah. 
the rabbis connected the olam haba and the resurrection. They connected those two. Now, according to the Bible, when was the resurrection to take place? Now, people will just jump on this verse in John. Well, the last day. What last day? And then they'll say, well, the last day of everything. And you say, was that what the Bible teaches? See, the scripture testify that the time of the resurrection was to be the last day of the old covenant age. And if you don't understand the old covenant age and the new covenant age, you're going to really get tripped up when you read the Bible because understanding the transition is very important. And we know that the old covenant ended in AD 70. So we know when the last day was. It was at the destruction of the Jewish temple. That age ended. Now the disciples knew that the fall of the temple, destruction of the city, meant the end of the old covenant age and the inauguration of a new age. Let's look at Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12 teaches us a lot about this last day and tells us exactly when it will take place. Now at that time, Michael the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. So Daniel's talking about this time of great distress here. He says, now, he says, at that time, your people, everyone who was found in the book, will be rescued. So Daniel says this resurrection is going to come after a time of great trouble. Now this sounds just like what Yeshua says in Matthew 24, 21. He says, for there will be great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall be. So here Yeshua, he's speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem. Notice also Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So there's going to be a resurrection. Now compare this with Matthew 13, 40 and 43. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Okay, it's not the end of the world. It's the end of the age, the old covenant age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all the stumbling block, those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into a furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, let's compare what he just said there in Matthew 13, 40-43 with Daniel 12, 3. Those who have insight will shine brightly. And Matthew says the righteous will shine forth as the sun. They're shine like the stars. And both Daniel 12 and Matthew 13, they're speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in AD 70, the resurrection is an event that would happen at that last day. Now, verse 4 of Daniel 12 identifies this time of the end. It says, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Now, if you're paying attention, you know I just said the Bible never speaks of the end of time. Right? You paying attention? Well, here it says the end of time. Why? Very, very bad translation. I don't know why the New American Standard Bible did this. This is, this is ridiculous. You can look at any other translation. The King James, the New King James, Young's Literal, the NIV, the NLT, they all say the time of the end. Not the end of time. Because the Bible never speaks of the end of time. So why they translated it that way, I don't get In response to Daniel's question at the end of verse 6, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Well, the angel answers and he says, I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and he swore by him who lives forever and ever that there should be time, times, and a half time. How long is that? Three and a half years. All right? Three and a half years. And he says, and as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. Who are the holy people? Jews. What's the shattering? It's the destruction of Jerusalem. And notice he says it's going to be a time, time and a half a time. Jerusalem came under siege for three and a half years before it was finally destroyed. How did Daniel know that? How did he know something's going to ha- I think maybe God told him something, okay? This is prophecy, people. This is the destruction of Jerusalem. Now in verse 10, Daniel connects the resurrection with the abomination that makes desolate. 
Daniel 12, 11. And from that time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. So Yeshua, Yeshua refers to this in Matthew 24, 15 in discussing the fall of Jerusalem. And then the last verse in Daniel 12 records a promise given to Daniel about his own personal resurrection. He says, but as for you, Daniel, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So Daniel, you're going to rise up at the end of the age. That's when the resurrection takes place. Now the statements of verses 1, 7, 11, and 12 tie the resurrection to the time immediately following the destruction of Jerusalem. The power of the holy people is shattered. The resurrection occurs. Now what Daniel had written was well ingrained in the thinking of the Jews that Yeshua was talking to. They knew that. Because remember when, when Lazarus died, this is what Martha says, we already saw this, but you know he said, your brother will rise again. And she's like, I know that. It's going to happen at the last day. In other words, she goes, that's a long time off, I don't want to wait. But they knew when the resurrection was to take place. It was the last day of the old covenant period. The new covenant, as we often say, is an everlasting covenant. There's no last days to an everlasting covenant. All right? It goes on forever. All right, back to our text. Verse 40 says, For this is the will of my Father. Here's God's will. People always wonder, what's the will of God? This is it right here. That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him at the last day. Where verse 39 speaks corporately, verse 40 is individual. Everyone who believes in Him, He's going to be raising. They're all, He's going to raise them all, alright? Now, He says here, beholding and believing. And again, these are parallel. This just like comes and believes in, in 635. It is God's sovereign will that those who He gives will believe in Yeshua and will have eternal life and will be resurrected on the last day. No doubt about it. Now, Hendrickson writes this. He says, Scripture teaches a counsel that cannot be changed. Speaking of the counsel of God. In other words, God doesn't have a plan B. All right? A calling that cannot be resolved. An inheritance that cannot be defiled. A foundation that cannot be shaken. A seal that cannot be broken. And a life that cannot perish. This is the Father's will who has sent me that all that He has given me, I should lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. It's going to be all that the Father gives are going to come. Now, in 41 He says, Therefore the Jews were grumbling about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Who is grumbling here? Okay, it's not a trick question. Just trying to get you to think. The Jews. All right, you got Jews grumbling. You ever heard about that before? You ever heard of Jews grumbling about anything? <laughs> the word used for grumbling here is gonguzo. It's a relatively rare word in the New Testament, but it was used in the Tanakh to describe Israel's murmuring against Yahweh in the wilderness. You know, and I just think, how ignorant are these people? You have just seen the ten plagues with your own eyes. You've just seen the Red Sea part. You walked across on dry land. You've seen God close the Red Sea, kill all the Egyptians, and the very next thing you do is you start grumbling. Are you insane? Is there something wrong with you that you would grumble against what you just saw? I'd be afraid God would just strike you dead on the spot. But no, they grumble. And the parable with the wilderness wandering is so involved in this text, we've got to see it. When the manna was given, they murmured. They're out in the desert. They got nothing to eat. So God provides a manna. You know what, you know what manna means, right? What's it? What is it? They have no, what is this? That's manna. That's what they said when they went out there. What is this? Oh, food. Cool. Every day God provided for them. Every day. But they just had to grumble. Look at Numbers 11, 5 and 6. We were, they're, they're, Thinking back on the slavery. Now, okay, they're in slavery in Egypt. Now, remember how it ended there? Okay, the Egyptians take away their mortar, take away their straw. You make it on your own now. We're going to make things... You want to leave? We're going to make it harder for you. 
And so they're out in the wilderness, and they go, we remember the fish we used to eat free in Egypt. Ah, Egypt had some good fish. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Man, it was good in Egypt. You ever done that? You got away from a bad situation, and you looked at that bad situation as if it was good somehow? But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. We're sick of manna, they're saying. Every day, manna, manna, manna. We're sick of manna. Okay, you're in the desert. Okay, there's nothing to eat out there. There's nothing to drink out there. God's taking care of you, and you want to grumble and complain against God. That's just crazy. So just as the Israelites of that day rejected Moses, these Jews today are rejecting Christ. They're grumbling about him. Who is this guy think he is coming down? What are they talking about coming down out of heaven? Now in this gospel, remember that Lazarus uses the term the Jews to represent the enemies of Christ. Alright? He could be referring to just Jewish population, could be referring to Jewish leaders. Most of the time the Jewish leaders are in mind here. But it's become something of a technical term in this gospel to mean those who oppose Christ. Alright, so the Jews are grumbling and they're saying, how does he say he came down out of heaven? See, they understood what Yeshua was saying when he said that. I'm the bread of life that comes down out of heaven. This is a Jewish idiom, coming down out of heaven. It means he's pre-existent. I'm divine. What do you mean come down out of heaven? And what's interesting is they obviously saw Yeshua as the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. They saw him in some messianic sense here like this. Deuteronomy 18, Yahweh here is talking to Moses. And he tells Moses, I'm going to raise up a prophet from among their countrymen, the Jewish people, like you. I'm going to get another prophet like you, Moses. And I will put my words in his mouth. That should get them to pay attention. Okay, This prophet who's coming, I'm going to put my words in his mouth. He shall speak them all that I command him. All right? So they thought that, you know, hey, that's what they're saying. They, this is a messianic fever. Maybe this is the prophet that Moses talked about. This is the one that was going to come. Well, if they thought it was, they should have listened because the very next verse says, it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of them. In other words, if they don't listen, they're going to pay. They saw the miracles that Yeshua did. They viewed him in at least some sense of fulfillment of this. But they wouldn't come to Him. They would not believe in Him. Why? How do people see these miraculous events right in front of their eyes, healing people, feeding people, raising dead? How do they see this and not believe? It's because they were not given. If you're not given, you're not drawn, you're not called, you're not going to see it. I'm sorry. You say, well, that's not fair. Talk to God. I didn't make this up. Okay? This is His plan. And the reason for this plan is that no flesh should glory in His presence. Nobody gets to brag. Look at verse 42. They were saying, is not this Yeshua? Again, they didn't say Jesus. They didn't have a letter J in their alphabet. They never heard of, they didn't know the Greek, Asus. All right? They called Him by His name, Yeshua. Is this not Yeshua, the son of Yosef? No J's. Whose father and mother we know? In other words, wait a minute. We know this guy. How does he say, I came down out of heaven? That doesn't make any sense. You know, some of his hearers had known him since he was a child. They probably played with him. Yeah, he played like little kids, okay? He, he was a little kid. He played like little kids, all right? Even more, you know, a lot of people had probably come to know him since he moved to Capernaum, where they're at right now, where he's giving this discourse. And his claim to have come down to heaven seemed to contradict everything they knew. It's like, wait a minute, we know your dad, we know your mom. What is this I came down to heaven thing? His humanity was a stumbling block to them. They couldn't get in their minds that God had become a man, that God had come down to meet human needs. They couldn't get it. How how can he be saying this? We don't get it. They think they know him. And his claims just don't add up. Remember in chapter 5, he claimed to be equal with the Father. Equal in every way. And, you know, normally, if someone makes claims like that, you could say, you're crazy. You're a nut job. What's wrong with you? 
But when you claim to be God, and then you raise the dead, and you heal the sick, and you feed, you know, you got to think, well, something's going on here, right? Something's going on. I mean, if he's not from God, who can do this? Who can do these kind of things? Rabbi Duncan, who was the professor of Hebrew at the University of Edinburgh, said this, and I thought it was, it was pretty profound. He says, no moral man made the claims that Yeshua made. You understand that? No moral man. If you're moral, you don't claim to be God. <laughs> okay? Unless you're God. You know, no, no moral man would say that. All right? Maybe an immoral man would try to make those claims to fool people. If they were to make them, we would think he was mad. He says, Christ then deceived man kind of by conscious fraud. In other words, here's our choices. Either Christ was conscious of this and he was a fraud, or he himself was deluded, or he was divine. He says, there is no getting out of the trilemma. <laughs> That's it. You, you know, he was mad, he was deceived, or he's divine. You, you, those are the only choices you have. People who are saying don't claim to be God. People who are not trying to deceive people don't go around claiming to be God. People who are God can claim to be God. Now, notice how Yeshua deals with their objection. Remember the objection? We know you. We know your mom and dad. You're a man. You're just like us. Well, here's what Yeshua says. He goes, what, guys, you don't get that I came from heaven. He didn't do any of that. Yeshua answered and said to them, don't grumble among yourselves. You guys are murmuring again. Knock off the grumbling. And this is a present imperative with a negative participle, which usually means stop an action that's already in progress. They're already grumbling. He says, stop that. What I see Yeshua saying here is this. Stop your grumbling about all this. You're just going nuts because you don't get it. How can I be coming down from heaven when you know my parents? Well, the problem is you don't understand because you have not been given to me by my Father. You have not been drawn by my Father. You are not part of the elect. Therefore, you are blind to spiritual things and you don't get it. You don't get it. Look what he says in verse 44. So right after that, he says, no one can come to me. You're grumbling about this, but don't grumble because no one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So he's saying, don't grumble. You can't come if you're not drawn. I know you don't get it. It's all right. Again, who's he talking to here? Unbelieving Jews, right? So they're saying, we don't get it. If you come down from heaven, how can we know your mother and father? And they're, they're asking for a kind of... Make sense to them, so they want some kind of explanation. And I love this, this is so cool. Yeshua just says, if you're not called, you don't come. Now, how many of you ever learned that in an evangelism class? You ever taken an evangelism class? You know, evangelism explosion. There's all kinds of evangelism classes, and I'll tell you what. I was when I took my last evangelism class, I was kind of a Calvinist at that time, so it was a little humorous to me, you know. They went into all these things, make sure this and make sure that. You know, because if you line your ducks up in a row, guess what? You get you one, okay? And you put a notch on your gospel gun belt. You know, I got me another one. But you got to do everything just right. And if you don't, if the person doesn't get saved, then guess what? Your failure and the blood, their blood is on your hands. Man, I dealt with a lot of guilt when I was under that system, you know? I mean, wow, they didn't come to Christ. Am I going to be held responsible for that? No, you never learned this method in evangelism class, okay? <laughs> Have you ever been taught when witnessing, when witnessing to the lost, you got to just tell them, listen, I know this gospel is a little complicated for you, but if you're not called, you'll never get it. Unless God draws you, you're not coming. And they'd be like, what? <laughs> Why are you telling me? Because you might be the elect, but if you don't get it, you're not elect, you don't get it, you can't come. But I want to come. Oh, okay, well then whosoever will may come. Come on, you, if you want to come, someone changed your want. They don't teach this in evangelism classes, but this is Yeshua's method. He just flat tells them, you can't come unless you're drawn. And I don't know how many people I've heard to say, you've got to be careful, you don't tell people about Calvinism. You don't tell them about the absolute God and salvation. Really? Because I find it in my Bible, did God make a mistake? Did He put stuff in the Bible we're not supposed to teach people? It's ridiculous, people. Because our society is, you know, can't handle things, doesn't mean we stop telling them the truth. You know? You can't come unless you're drawn. That's just it. 
So if you came, if you came, guess what? You're part of the elect. You're part of the given. Now we dealt with verse 44 last week, and if you didn't hear that message, go back and check it out because this is an important verse. But I don't want to spend time going over the same ground again. All right. What we saw was this Greek word "helkuo" means to draw by irresistible superiority. And I showed you most of the verses. I told you to look them all up. It's only used eight times. Look up every use of helkuo. To draw by irresistible superiority. And the word always has the idea in it drawing against resistance. Alright? So the, the draw is irresistible and there's some resistance. But no matter the resistance, when God draws, people come. Now, let me tell you what some commentators have written on this verse. Okay? Because you want to make sure people like you, so you say the things that, you know. Lang says this, Helkuo denotes all sorts, of, all sorts of drawing, from violence to persuasion or invitation. That is so dishonest of Lang. He's a great commentator. That is dishonest. You can't show me one use of Helkuo in the Bible or in other literature that has the idea of an invitation. You can't find it because it's not there. He says, but persons can be drawn only according to the laws of personal life. In other words, it depends on you and how you get drawn. He says, hence, it is not to be taken in a high predestinarian sense. Yes, it is. That's the only sense it's to be taken in. William Barclay, how many know who William Barclay is? Great commentator, great historian. He's a liberal, so don't be very careful. Okay, if he talks about history, okay. If he talks about theology, Write them off, okay? Skip that part. William Barclay says this. Always there is this idea of resistance. Talking about Helkuo, it has the idea of resistance. God can and does draw men, but man's resistance can defeat the pull of God. What kind of God are you talking about here, Barclay? See, I would think the name God would presuppose you're powerful, okay? This is either a really weak God or a really strong man, okay? Because this man defeats the pull of God. What kind of God are you worshiping? Men are, men are superior here. So Lang and Barclay both twist and distort the word. And people, I'm just talking about linguistics here. Just the, the way the word is used, the way, what the word means. But you, if you're, you know, predisposed to some other belief and you're gonna stick with your belief, you're gonna twist and distort the scripture till it says what you want it to say. Leon Morris, who is an evangelical, on the other hand, says this, there is not one example in the New Testament of the use of this verb, he's talking about Helkuo, where the resistance is successful. You don't resist God, people. I mean, how good was Jonah at resisting God? I'm not going to Nineveh. Okay, fine. How about going for a long ride on a short fish, okay, you know? You you don't resist God, people. God gets done what He wants done. His will is not frustrated. Now, the concept of God's drawing people to Himself is expressed in the Greek translation of Jeremiah 31.3. Yahweh appeared to Him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Listen, who God foreknows, and that foreknowledge means to love beforehand. He irresistibly draws. If we come to Yeshua, it's because we've been drawn. Listen. If we come to Yeshua, it's because we've been drawn, which none of us deserve. Amen? Thank you. And if we don't come to Yeshua, it's because the Father left us in our rebellion, which all of us deserve. Amen? That's right. So God is not unjust, never unjust in what He does. You might think it's injustice. In verse 45, He says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. This is a paraphrase from Isaiah 54, 13. In this prophecy, Yahweh is speaking to the Jewish people about their future hope in Messiah and His coming kingdom. And among the promised blessings is the assurance that all your sons will be taught of Yahweh. That's what the text says in Isaiah, all your sons. Here, the word, he admitted your sons. Because the quotation is expanded here from Israel to a universal appeal. They all shall be taught of God. 
Yeshua is here expanding what kind of drawing the Father is expressing here. It's an illumination that's implanted within the individual. This is where we see more about the drawing. He says, and they shall be taught of God. And so a lot of people will focus on this verse and they say, well, this is how people come to God. They're taught of God. So if you take the Bible and teach it to them, that's what draws them. Wrong. If I believe that, and if you believe that, if you believe the preaching of the Word of God would draw them into Christ, then I would be all for us arming ourselves and go out and grabbing people and bringing them in here and preaching, turning on the Bible and preaching to them until they got saved. Once they get saved, they're not going to prosecute you for, you know, kidnapping, right? Because they're Christians now. You know, but that's not how it happens. The Word of God only comes to life once you're given life. And I think that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the New Covenant. This is a promise of the New Covenant. They'll all be taught of God. And Jeremiah looks forward to a time of a New Covenant where God will put His law in the people's minds and He'll write it on their hearts. In Ezekiel, God promises a new heart and a new spirit. He says, I will take out your stony heart and I will give you a heart of flesh. So it's a heart transplant. The prophet Joel anticipates the time when God will pour out His Spirit, not only on Jews, but on all people. It is a spiritual thing. God has to do it. And they'll be taught. This is the blessing of the New Covenant that God teaches them. He does it. He puts the Word of God in our heart. He says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. Remember, coming to Christ, believing in Christ, they're the same thing. So, he has heard and learned are synonymous with being given or drawn by the Father. The one who has heard the voice of God, they come. They come to the Father. 46, he says, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. This is repeating the truth that he taught in the prologue in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of the Son in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Listen, Yeshua is the only one who has seen God fully. And He is the only one who can make God known to us. Only Christ can do that. No one else. Listening to Yeshua then becomes essential for learning from God. If you want to learn, you come to Yeshua. Only those who come to Him will know and learn anything about God. There's no other way you learn about the Father than through the Son. And He closes this section in verse 47 with, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes has eternal life. And guess what? The one who has eternal life gets raised on the last day. All that are given, all that are drawn, all who have heard and learned, they all believe. And everyone who believes gets eternal life, and everyone who gets eternal life gets resurrected. And this is not an invitation to the lost people. This is a doctrinal declaration concerning the saints. Alright? He says, He who believes. They're believing. The person who's believing has, past tense, eternal life. Why? They have, that's how they believe because God's given them life and therefore they respond. Let me close this morning with a couple of quotes. One from A.W. Pink, one from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Pink writes this, Believing is not the cause of a sinner obtaining divine life. Rather, it is the effect of it. Man, people don't get that today. All right? The fact that a man believes is the evidence that he already has divine life within him. That's why he believes. He's got life. Therefore, we say that when any man does believe, is found believing, it is proof positive that he is already in possession of eternal life. He that believeth on the, me hath, already has, eternal life. Charles Haddon Spurgeon writes this, The doctrine which leaves salvation to the creature and tells him that it depends upon himself is the exaltation of the flesh. It's really important to get that. And a dishonoring of God because you're saying, "I I had to add something to what Christ did to get me there. My will, my works, my whatever. But that which God puts in, but that which puts in God's hand man, fallen man, and tells man that though he has destroyed himself, yet his salvation must be of God, that doctrine humbles man in the very dust. And then he is just in the right place to receive the grace and mercy of God 
It is a humbling doctrine. It is a humbling doctrine because you have no part in it. It's all up to God. And it's because God loves you, He saved you. And you don't pat yourself on the back or brag to anybody. You say, thank God. This text in John teaches us, I think, very clearly, the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation. And the context is dealing with unbelievers. People who are not given by the Father, they don't get it. They can't get it. And that's what Paul says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. 1 Corinthians 2.14 So here's the bottom line, people. If you are a believer, thank God for your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the miraculous gift of eternal life. Lord, I know in my own life I was not seeking You. I did not care about You. could have cared less about You. And one day, things started to change in my life and I couldn't even understand it. Thank You, Father, for Your grace. Thank You for Your sovereign draw that is irresistible, that brings us into a family of God. Lord, we rejoice in this. And I pray that understanding the truth of your sovereignty would not hinder or harm our evangelism. We are called, Lord, to preach the gospel to the whole world. May we be faithful to do that. But may we do it, Lord, without guilt and without shame, realizing that when we preach to one of your elect, they're going to get it. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen.